No. Okay. So, um, okay. So Isaiah chapter 49. Now, now remember where we've been. Uh, the title of the message today is called Salvation from the Servant. Yes. There we go. Okay. When we left off last time, uh, let me, let me remind you. So God has, uh, okay. What, what's going on? Isaiah is writing to the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember, the nation of Israel has been divided, civil war. The northern kingdom has already been judged. They're off, uh, taken by Assyria. So now we've got this little nation of Judah surrounded by the Assyrian Empire. And uh, Isaiah is pleading with them to repent before the, the same thing happens to them. And they're carried off by the Babylonians. Well, now in Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying not to the current generation where Isaiah is living. He's looking ahead to that that uh, deportation time, to, to the time where Judah has been taken into Babylon. Everybody is a refugee in the land of Babylon, and he is ministering to them and talking to them and, and, and describing what that will be like, but also reminding them that even in God's discipline, God has not abandoned his people. And this goes right in line with what Pastor Terry is talking about in Romans 11. In fact, we were talking at our staff meeting this week how Romans 11 and uh, really parallels what we're doing now. In fact, I think I think Paul in Romans quotes from Isaiah more than any other book in the New Testament. But if it's not if it's not the ultimate one, it certainly is frequent. So these are going to parallel one another. But anyway, so so God is is looking ahead through the prophet Isaiah to the time of the Babylonian captivity, and He's talking to that generation. And remember, in chapter 48 last time, we, we see this great, this great event. The people coming back from Babylon, and they're coming back, and God is smoothing the way, and he's providing for their needs, and they're going to rebuild the city, and all will live happily ever after, right? Well, not exactly. Look at how this triumphant chapter concluded, if you missed, our, missed us last week, in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 22. Okay, so they're coming home, and everything's great, and I'll be your God, and... Right, go forth from Babylon, verse 20 says, flee the Chaldeans with a sound of joyful shouting. Proclaim this, send it out to the end of the earth. Everybody is great, right? But, verse 22, there is no peace for the wicked. And by context, the wicked is the, are the Israelites because God is delivering them and bringing them back, but in their heart, they still have not Turn to God. And we made the point last time that uh, you'll remember just one scene from one of the books we have about the time in Babylon, which is the book of Daniel, where uh, the king builds a statue and calls everybody to bow down and worship the statue, breaking the second commandment, breaking the first commandment. And uh, how many of those thousands and thousands of Jews that went into captivity, how many of them said, oh, Mr. King, we're not going to bow down to the statue? That's right, three teenagers. And uh, so th- this is this is not a time of great repentance. The, the disciplinary measures of the 70-year Babylonian captivity did not change the hearts of most of the Israelites, and that's the sad conclusion. So so we get to chapter 48, and like so many, th- do you feel like you're on an emotional roller coaster in Isaiah? She's like, yes, God is great. Oh, the people are horrible. Yes, God's going to deliver. Oh, why don't they get it? And you're just up and down and all around, right? And it's just like, good night. What is going on? So we get to the end of 48, and we're like, is there any hope for this wicked people? And then we turn the page to chapter 49, verse 1. So follow me along in chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O islands. Pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. 
He has made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He has concealed me. He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. And we say, what on earth is going on? And remember, Isaiah likes these jump cuts, right? I mean, it, it, this is like a an action movie. If you if you like the Netflix action movies, where it's just like boom, 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 then there's all these quick little scene changes. Isaiah is the book for you because he's constantly changing camera angles. He's constantly changing scenes. And just like as we've always seen throughout this book, there's a big transition between 48:22 and 49:1. And so the first thing we have to ask is, who on earth is speaking here? Who is speaking? Is it is it a representative of the Israelites? Is it Cyrus? Is it Isaiah? It, who who is it? Who is who is speaking? Any ideas uh, here in the studio audience or at home? Yeah, verse three. What's that? Uh, yeah, verse three says. Look at this. Uh, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Now, now remember this. We, we looked at the servant a few weeks ago back in chapter 42. And one of the things we have to understand about the servant is the servant starts off as, as this, well, it starts off with a couple of individual uh, representatives, kings that were called in Isaiah's time that were called God's servants. And then collectively, it's all the Israelites and then that gets narrowed down to this one individual who is called the servant. Now, what's interesting is here, he says, you are my servant Israel. But remember, we have to stop and in the context say, is that Israel like corporately, like all the people? Or is that Israel like the one representative that we've seen talked about in previous chapters? And, and the answer is, well, we don't know yet. We need to keep reading, right? But we see there, the Lord has called this servant from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. And we wonder, what does that mean? In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow. So let's uh, let's pick it up on the outline here. It is the servant identified as Israel. But notice the description. Called from the womb. We see that in the same in chapter in verse 5. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Right? We also see that he speaks with a sword. Now, now don't let that trip you up. The, the idea of speaking with a sword or a mouth that reveals a, a sharp sword means that this servant will speak in judgment. In judgment. And it just so happens that in the book of Revelation, we read the exact same description of a man who will come and who will judge out of the sword that is his mouth. Any idea what his name is? What's that? Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, Jesus Christ our Lord. You remember, uh, and if you want to turn over there or you can just listen as I turn there, I know you're familiar with the verse already, but there are three times in the book of Revelation where this language is used. The first time we see it, is in chapter 1 in John's introduction describing remember remember this book which uh, which we are prone to call revelations because we pluralize things here in the south uh, is actually called the revelation of Jesus Christ 
to John. That's the whole, it's, it's one of the longest titles of any book in the Bible. And uh, don't take my word for it. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, and uh, specifically to John, as we know, as the recipient of all of this. Okay, So as John is introducing us, not to, not to Jesus' message yet, but to Jesus the person. L- listen to this. This is, this is incredible. Look at chapter 1. If, if you've turned over there, you can go ahead and do that. Otherwise, you can just listen. Chapter 1, verse 13. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. Here it is. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. This is not the benign Mr. Rogers Jesus. I mean, this, this is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords showing up. And, and so that's the description. Now watch that sword in action now as we look ahead to verse, chapter 2, verse 12. Look at this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And he goes on to, to talk about his, his judgment there. Look at verse 16. Therefore, in, in, in calling uh, the church at Pergamum to repent, he says, verse 16, Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. His judgment, his coming, his coming uh, war as he comes against those who would oppose him. Okay, so back to Isaiah, this description of the one having the sword coming from his mouth, we, we see is used in the New Testament to describe Jesus. Okay, now, now we don't know it's Jesus yet in Isaiah, but we're just unfolding it as it goes. But as we'll see, uh, it will become clear more who the identity of the servant is here. Okay, so back to Isaiah. So he speaks with a sword. Number three, he's like a hidden arrow. Back to verse 2, he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. And, and the idea is that this is not somebody who has just been revealed fully yet. He's hidden in the quiver. And uh, remember Pastor Terry was talking about in, in Romans 11 how uh, uh, there, there's this mystery, right? There's this mystery that's coming. And, and we understand that it takes the New Testament to fully disclose the gospel and the personal work of Jesus. But we get these hints in the Old Testament. So he's like a hidden arrow in the quiver. Uh, Isaiah says here, verse 4, and what else does he do? He says, uh, but I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. And that's kind of weird because we have these descriptions. You know, he's called from the womb and he's got a sharp sword from his mouth and he's right. And, and then here what we he, what we learn is this servant will be denied justice. He will be, uh, his toil will be in vain, and he will spend his strength here, as it says, 
for nothing and vanity. And, and that makes us think, as we open the book, and, and uh, we can just turn to the right a few pages to Isaiah 53, which, of course, we, we know we're all going to, to 53 here. In verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, right? Uh, we know that. Um, verse Chapter 53, verse 2, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken. There's that idea of injustice again. And, uh, and, and so we see some of the same parallels going on here. And uh, so we'll, we'll get there in a moment. But for now, uh, it appears that this servant toils in vanity and, and he's unsuccessful in his mission. And yet, what does it say? And yet his reward will be with God. And that makes us go, huh? Well, I wonder how that's going to play out. Okay, so just I, I know I'm, there's a lot of pieces Isaiah is putting on the table. He's not connecting them all together yet, but we're just trying to figure out who this servant is at this point, and we may not understand all the details, but uh, let's keep going here. Look at verses three to six as we understand the mission now of the servant. What's his mission? Chapter forty-nine, verse three. He said to me, "You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory." Interesting. This servant will be the conduit of God's glory, the stage of God's glory, that, that God is planning something big to glorify himself through this servant. We don't know what it is yet, but we know that that's God's plan. Look at verses 5 and 6 now. Now uh, And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Now watch this. To bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. Okay, let's stop. Pull the car over here for a minute. Uh, who is the servant? Is the servant Israel? Now, he's called my servant Israel, but remember, we got two options. we got Israel corporate, right, all the people, or we have Israel, this one, or Israel, the, the one coming from Israel, to be the special servant that we saw back in earlier chapters. So it can, can this be Israel the nation? What do you think? Talk to me here. Okay, I got shaking hands here in the studio audience, shaking heads. Let's look at home. Viewers at home, what do you think? Is this corporate Israel? No. No. Why can it not be corporate Israel? I'm making you do hermeneutics early in the morning. I'm sorry. I know. I know. Why cannot this? Why can this not be corporate Israel? Corporate Israel is going to be the servant. That's right. That's right. So look at this. Look at this. He says in verse 5, the servant will be the one to save corporate Israel. Right? Is, the, the servant is the one who's going to bring the nation back to him, meaning to God, so that Israel might be gathered to him, to God. Do you see that? So Israel must not be the nation here. It's some special representative from the nation who is whose mission is to reconcile Israel to God. And that's not all. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 6. This is really interesting. Verse 6. He says, is it, <coughs> is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob? to restore the preserved ones of Israel. There's that same description. Watch this. 
I will also make you a light of the nations. Are you, are you with me? Is your seatbelt fastened? This is, this is incredible. I will also make you a light to the nations. Why? So that my salvation may reach all of Israel. Is that what your Bible says? Look at your Bible. I will make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Wow. Do you, do you see it? So God is going to bring this servant. What's he going to do? He's going to restore Israel. He's going to bring Israel back. And he's going to make Israel a light, an influence, we might think, for the whole nation. You say, why is he going to do that? Because God desires salvation to come to the whole world. Now, is this not exactly what Pastor Terry's been talking about in Romans 11? Paul tells us in Romans 11 how God's going to do it. Right? Some of the branches are going to be broken off so that, so that non-Jewish people can be grafted into the promises of the covenant given to Israel. That's how he's going to do it. But I want you to see here, do not, do not, do not fall into this silly, common, um, belief that somehow God saving all the world was plan B. And that happens in the New Testament. Do you see right here that Isaiah, God is prophesying through Isaiah saying, this has always been the plan. It's always been the plan that Israel would be a light to the nation so that the whole world might be saved. That's always been the plan. And right here what we see is how it unfolds. Now, remember there's this great little verse in Luke. And I know I know it's like 130 degrees outside and you're not thinking about Christmas. You, you, the last thing on your mind is Christmas. But I want you to think about Christmas for a minute because in in Luke chapter 2, there's this great reference where uh, uh, Joseph and Mary meet this widow in the temple. Do you remember this? As, uh, as little baby Jesus there is in the temple, and uh, Mary and Joseph are there, and we see when he is presented... Um, there is Anna, the prophetess, right, that, that he meets. And there is also this, um, it, he's described as a devout man in chapter 25. His name is Simeon. And as he takes baby Jesus into his arms, he prophesies over him. Listen to what he says. This is Luke 2, 29. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, listen to this, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, verse 32, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. What is Mr. Simeon doing? He's taking that reference in Isaiah that we just read, and he's applying it to Jesus, even as a little baby. So we see that this, this plan of God making Israel a light to the nation so that God's salvation may reach all the people, that culminates in the coming of the Messiah and the person of Jesus. And we see the New Testament looking backward and quoting some of these passages that we're seeing in Isaiah. Okay, so that's his mission. His mission 
is to make Israel a light, to save them, to reconcile them, but to make them the, the stage and the means by which all people in the world might be reached. Okay, you with me? Making sense? Okay, we got to keep going. Notice with me, thirdly, the oddity of the servant. The oddity of the servant. Look at chapter 49 now, back to Isaiah, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and the Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Look at this. He says, first of all, though he is the redeemer of Israel, he will be despised and abhorred by the world, including his own people Israel. Now, we saw that in Isaiah 53, right? He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We know those verses very well. And Isaiah is saying, though he's the redeemer, he's going to come and people are going to mock him. They're going to make fun of him. They're going to despise him. They're going to think he looks funny. They're going to do all these things to reject him. Now, how many years is this before Jesus shows up? Isaiah is writing... In the 7th century, isn't he? So we've got 600 and some odd years before Jesus is born. And yet, what is Isaiah doing? Even even people that hold to a late date on Isaiah, and those are those people are wrong, but even people that, that struggle with the dating of Isaiah, you can't deny that what you're getting here is a prophecy concerning Jesus you know, hundreds of years before Jesus comes and it happens. And and many of you know that the, the greatest find of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 uh, in uh, the, the shores next to the Dead Sea in a little community called Qumran, the greatest find was a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. It's called the Great Isaiah Scroll. And that scroll has this verse in it, and it dates at least 200 years before the time of Jesus. So now, why am I telling you all this? Remember what Isaiah is trying to do in this context. He's trying to convince the people to believe God. To turn away from the idols, to turn away from the false worship and say, will you listen to God? How's he doing it? God tells them things before they come to pass. And here's another prophecy. This is going to go well beyond the time of Isaiah's day, some 500, 600 years till the time of Jesus being born. But we have this description. He's the the redeemer, but he's going to be despised and abhorred by the world. But then look at the change now. He's the despised one to the one abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers. Yet, look at this. Kings will see and arise and princes also will bow down. Say, what is this? So, so they, they go through this transition, right, where they reject him and they mock him and they despise him. And then at some point in the future, what happens? They go, oh, we didn't realize that he was the king. So you have this, this, um, this flip, this contrast that happens. And at the end of the verse there, God is faithful to choose him. Look at this, because the, of the Lord who is faithful to the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. One more example that God is going to be faithful to his promises is the coming of this servant. Okay? Now, watch this. Verse 8. God answers and will help and will keep the servant. In his, he's being despised. 
He thinks his work is vain, right? But he cries out to God, and God answers the servant and says, I will help you. I will keep you. Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in the favorable time, I have answered you, meaning the servant, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritage, saying to those who are bound, go forth, and to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Along the roads they will be fed, and their pasture will be on bare heights. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. You say, what's going on? Well, listen, what did the servant ask, right? He asked to be successful in saving the people. And God answers him by saying this. The servant, notice the language here, verse 8, will be a covenant for the people to restore their land. Now tell me, what is the covenant regarding the land promises? Let's, let's go to Old Testament studies here for a minute. Which covenant in the Bible talks about the land promise? Do you remember? Abraham. Okay, that's correct. It starts with the Abrahamic covenant. It is renewed in what is sometimes called the, the Palestinian covenant. But yes, you're absolutely right. Now, the, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, that's the reference there in your notes, promised a couple of things, right? God was going to make from Abraham a great nation. Remember that? He was going to bring peoples from that, you know, as, as numerous as the, as the sand of the sea. He would give them a land. And in Abraham and his family, all the earth would be blessed, right? Now, what's that a reference to? When through Abraham's family, all the earth will be blessed. That's a reference to the coming seed, right? The coming servant who we see here. And that's why God says he's the covenant. You say, how is the servant the covenant? Because he's the one who's going to bless families of the earth. He's the one that's going to save Israel and give them their land. Do you see all that? All that comes together right here. He is the one who restores them and brings them back to their land. Now notice this. He will bring them back to safety. We see descriptions of the safe journey and bringing them back. And we scratch our head and we say, where is he bringing them back? Where is he bringing them back? What, what, what do you think by context here? Taking them back where? Look at verse 12. Behold, these will come from afar, and lo, these will come from the north and from the west, and these from the land of uh, Sinim. Where are they? Where are the people going? It's, it's, it's an obvious question, but, but I want to make sure you're tracking with me. Where are they coming to? Jerusalem. Back to the land. That's right. Back to Israel. Back to the land of Jerusalem. That's right. Now, now watch this. Watch this. Look at the next verse. Verse 13. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth in joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Now, let me ask you a question. Did the mountains and the heavens and the whole earth rejoice when Israel went back from Babylon? Answer, no. The earth yawned. Some people may have paid attention. But whatever, listen closely, okay? Whatever Isaiah is describing here about a regathering to the land, 
We've been talking about them coming home from Babylon, right? We've been talking about that for chapter after chapter. So it's natural to think what he's talking about here is Israel is coming home from Babylon. And we might think that that's what he's talking about. And yet verse 13 indicates this can't be the coming back from Babylon. Because when this happens, you ready? When this happens, the whole world rejoices. The heavens rejoice. The mountains even rejoice. And so we scratch our head and we go, what then is he talking about? Now remember, Isaiah does something. And you'll remember that he does this. Isaiah likes to, like, likes to keep the camera focused on the here and now, right? Here's stuff that's going to happen right now. And then occasionally he picks up his telephoto lens and he swaps lenses and he looks way into the future and he says, but someday there's some other things that are going to happen. And that's what happened, has happened here. Isaiah has changed lenses on us once again. And this regathering is not the regathering from Babylon. This is a future regathering, again, that Pastor Terry just talked about in Romans chapter 11. And then all Israel will be saved. And we know that that corresponds with a regathering of the people to the land. Okay. Now we we some now, now you can understand uh, Israel is a little bit confused by this. <clears throat> Look at verse 14. But Zion said, "The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me." Okay. So so just like Asaph, right? We saw this with Asaph in Psalm 73. <clears throat> Israel is you know they're in bondage. They're in Babylon. It, it, they're under God's discipline, right? And, and they're thinking God has forgotten us. God has abandoned us, right? There's this other scene change here. And listen to God's response to Isaiah. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Can a woman forget her nursing child? Answer, no. No. And have compassion on the son of her womb? Could she forget to have compassion on her children? Even these may forget. You may find some random, like, like negligent mother. Somewhere, and that happens every now and then. We hear it on the news. God says, "Okay, so most moms would never do that." You might find a few exceptions, but even if they forget, I will not forget you. And listen in some of the most beautiful descriptions that we have of of God's relationship with His people Israel. These pictures of relationship. You're like a mother. I'm like a mother to you, and and you are my infant. I'm not going to forget you. I'm not going to um, uh, neglect you. Verse 16, behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me, meaning uh, there's a proximity there. So we have these beautiful pictures of a relationship. Notice this, pictures of deliverance as well. Your builders hurry. Your destroyers and devastators will depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All of them gather together. They come to you. What is he saying? He's saying all of a sudden the Babylonians who have taken over them, leave. They get up and leave. They're, they're destroyed by the Persians, as we know. Uh, verse seven, verse 18, you will surely put on all of them as jewels and bind them on as a bride for your waste and desolate places and your destroyed land. Surely now you will be too cramped for the inhabitants and those who are who swallowed you will be far away. So again, your enemies are far away and you're going to be back in Jerusalem and, and what's, the, what's the description of what's going on here? There's so many Jews here. Everybody's going, man, we don't have enough elbow room here. 
it's cramped back in the nation of Jerusalem because the people have been blessed and have multiplied greatly. God says, that's how much I love you. That's how much I'm caring for you. I'm going to give you this great future and you will continue to be a great nation. Verse 20, the children of whom you were bereaved will yet say in your ears, the place is too cramped. Make room for me that I may live here. Then you will say in your heart, who has begotten these for me since I've been bereaved of my children? Remember, many of the children died in the deportation. And, uh, and God says here, thus says the Lord, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and set up my standard to the people. And they will bring your sons in their bosom and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. So we have these pictures of deliverance of coming back to the land, but we've got these, these grander ideas where we've got children coming and grandchildren coming and new generations and uh, children that were taken away are being brought back by enemies and, and there's this great restoration. And so again, we go, this didn't happen. This didn't happen in Zerubbabel's time and Ezra's time where the people came back from Babylon. This must be talking about some future time that we <laughs> typically call the millennial kingdom. That's what that word there is used for. A future regathering of the nation of Israel, uh, of blessing and of prosperity in the land of Jerusalem. And we see these pictures of future generations that we, we read about, right? And, um, you know, sons and daughters coming back, people that were in other nations taken are, are regathered. And um, verse 23, kings will be your guardians and their princes, your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the ground and lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. We get a picture of this. This millennial triumph here, right? We read that, the, a, a restored nation that is uh, come back. And we see here that the faithful God, remember all this starts with Israel saying, God has forgotten us. He's abandoned us. And Isaiah says, let me give you a glimpse of the future. Let me give you a snapshot of what the nation will be like in the future in the millennial kingdom. A restored nation, children, grandchildren, daughters regathered. Princes bowing down, kings coming to be uh, a part of what's going on in the nation of Israel. And so all this, Isaiah is trying to prove the point that God, the faithful God, has kept his promises so that they will know that he alone is Yahweh. And that's your blank there. I made you write the, what's called the tetragrammaton, the four words, the four letters, Y H. W-H, the personal name of God. Verse 23, that's the point, right? I'm doing this, God says, so that you will know that I am <laughs> Yahweh. Look down at verse 26. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh, and they will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. Talking about the enemies of Israel being conquered. All flesh will know that I, Yahweh, am your Savior and your Redeemer the mighty one of Jacob. That's the point of all this. The point is to reiterate to the nation that God alone is the true God, that he's the redeemer and their savior. Now, listen to the challenge. As Isaiah turns the corner, it's not a direct sort of in-your-face challenge, but it's a, it's a, it's a subtle, it's, a, it's an exhortation. 
Verse 23. Here's the challenge. So that you will know that I am the Lord, those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. My Bible says hopefully wait. It's, it's, it's this word in Hebrew that has the idea of waiting for God, but not like, like, um, I don't know. How do you, if you order something from Amazon, like you ordered something from Amazon the other day, right? Remember you thought it was going to come Friday and it came yesterday. When you order something from Amazon and they give you a, a deliver by date, like you're guaranteed to buy it. What do you, you wait for that package, but how do you wait for it? Are you like, yeah, whatever? No, you're, you're waiting in hope, right? Friday, UPS is bringing this to my house. So I hope UPS is bringing it, right? You wait in hope. You're not just waiting around, just whatever. You're waiting with an expectation that something is going to happen. Something good is going to happen. And that's what the word means here. Those who wait for the Lord in terms of the good thing that's going to happen, right? This, this restoration, this regathering, this future hope. Those who wait for him will not be put to shame. Well, what has happened in the Babylonian captivity? What has happened in the Assyrian captivity? God's people, the, the nation that's supposed to be the light to the nations, has been dragged through the mud. They've been defeated. They've gone after other gods. They've been conquered by other nations. They are doing everything except being a light to the nations. And God says, you can come back. And if you will trust me, if you will wait for me, you will not be ashamed anymore, as they have been literally for decades. You know, and that's a good reminder for us. Uh, I, I think the call to wait on the Lord, to trust him, transcends this particular context. Uh, you may be looking out at the world and saying, how long is this going to go on? I mean, how long will this mode that we're in with coronavirus, or maybe it's, Looking at political unrest and, and moral destruction and, and erosion in our country. And, and, and where is the hope? You just, maybe you feel like ASAP. It's like, do I even need to be keep doing this? Because it doesn't look like things are going well. And so it's a good reminder for all of us that those who will wait for the Lord to trust him, that we will not be ashamed. We can put our whole life in the hands of our God and trust him and know that as he was faithful to his people Israel he will be faithful to his promises to us as well okay let's pray father thank you for uh, this great chapter that reminds us that you have always desired to save the nations and Israel was to be the light your nation and and yet we know of their failures we know of their stubbornness and disobedient and we thank you for the promises that we've read today that you have not abandoned your people that you will be faithful to do what you've said you will do, and there will be a massive restoration, a massive salvation of Israelites in the future that will once again bring the spotlight to your greatness and your faithfulness and your plan and your purpose. Lord, I pray with the challenge that Isaiah gave the Israelites that it would challenge us that in the midst of our day when things are, uh, we have many reasons to be discouraged and to lack hope and to be frustrated that we would wait with the expectation that you will do something good. Wait in hope and to know that if we are trusting you, we will never be ashamed. We will never be disappointed. 
Lord, help us to trust you in the season that we live in. Help us to be faithful, to discharge the duties, the the mission that you have for us to share the gospel and help us not to be weighed down by all this junk that's going on, but to trust you and to wait on you. In Jesus' name we pray.